Hey friends, welcome to the Addiction Nutritionist Podcast. I'm Kelly Miller, nutrition therapist, health and wellness recovery coach, and certified nutrition nerd. On this podcast, we talk about all things health and wellness and recovery. We talk about pause and nutrition for post-acute withdrawal syndrome. We talk about biochemical repair and amino acid therapy. We even get into food addiction. We want this platform to be your number one resource for creating health and wellness and recovery so you can stop self-sabotaging habits for good. If you're tired of feeling stuck and you're ready to take action and learn how to build healthy habits and recovery, this podcast is for you. When you recover well, there's just no oxygen for addiction to survive. Let's create wellness together and start today's episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to episode two of the Addiction Nutritionist podcast. I'm joined by my lovely co-host today, Nikki Aiello. Hello. Um, Hello. You look lovely. For those of you that may or may not be able to see her, she looks lovely. <laughs> Kelly does too, FYI. She's great, <laughs> She's great in blue. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I want to welcome you back. If you listened to the first episode of the Addiction Nutritionist podcast, um, if you didn't, that episode went into Nikki and I's personal stories and a little bit of background on why we decided to start this project and what the Addiction Nutritionist podcast is going to be about, the topics that we're going to cover, who it's for, that sort of thing. There was something that um, I wanted to address in the first podcast that I think I touched on, but didn't give kind of a a more detailed explanation of. And so I'm going to talk about that for a minute. Um, But just to let you know what today's episode is about, it's titled Crucial Nutrients. Today's going to be like a high level overview of, you know, what are nutrient deficiencies? Why do they occur? Why do they occur at a much higher rate for people who have abused drugs or alcohol? Um, and what we can do about it. So we're not going to give too much detailed information today about the very specifics of which nutrients you need, how much you, you need in terms of supplements and that sort of thing. We're going to save that information for future podcasts where we kind of take a deep dive into some of these really important minerals like magnesium and folate. But today we will give you practical information so that hopefully you'll walk away with a really good understanding of why nutrient deficiencies occur, why they're so much more common than people think. They're a lot more common than we've been told, um, why they're more common for people in recovery and just why they're such a critical piece of implementing as part of your recovery plan, repairing those nutrient deficiencies. So before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about um, who this podcast is for. So I touched on that last time. But I don't think I just, I don't think I talked about it enough. One of the reasons I wanted to start this podcast is because, you know, I've got a lot of clients, I've got a lot of great clients, but unfortunately I feel like I have to turn away a lot of people that want my help because they don't quite fit um, the exact picture of who I am best at working with. So I'll give you an example. I have a lot of like spouses that reach out to me. They have you know, a loved one, a wife, a husband, a partner that's either currently battling addiction, they're in recovery from addiction. They're trying to get all this information because they know that this can really help them. Maybe their spouse is receptive to it. Maybe they're not at the end of the day, maybe they just want to start implementing this stuff in their own life to be a little bit of a, 
uh, inspiration to their spouse. Like maybe if I do this, they'll pick up on it or I'm the primary cook in the house. So if I'm cooking this way, my spouse doesn't have a choice, you know, to eat this way. And I, I, in most cases, I really can't work with those clients because I only have so many spots available for people. And I have just found that I am at my best when I'm working with clients that are in recovery, that are super motivated and ready to do the work. So I wanted to be able to provide more information for those people that don't, um, you know, fit that narrative. Plus there's just so many other folks out there who are like, I feel like I'm addicted to sugar. I feel like I'm addicted to food. Um, or I have this other addiction. Um, and very occasionally I will work with those clients too, but for the most part, I have to turn a lot of them away. Um, there's a lot of folks too, who have maybe their primary issue is like autoimmune disorders, which is something that I have personally experienced and a big part of, um, you know, my healing journey. And they have these chronic issues. And although I'd love to work with them, like I'm not an expert on some of these autoimmune disorders. I have a very good gist of how to help people with them. I've gone through it myself and I've got tons of knowledge, but it, but it often takes somebody else who like spends all their time, you know, researching and helping people with thyroid disease or rheumatoid arthritis, et cetera. But a lot of those folks will tell me, I know I need to change my diet, but I feel addicted to carbs or whatever. Um, and they want to work with me as well, too. And I have to turn them away. And then just price, right? Like there's just a lot of folks that can't afford my services. And that's always made me feel really bad. And business coaches will tell you, like, you can't help everyone. You got to change your mindset. You know, you just have to be able to provide value and get the money that, you know, is equal to the value that you're providing and your time and energy. And I get that. Um, But I also have just felt a deep, deep desire to be able to provide this information in a really macro way for people that are like going through detox and they're using their insurance for that. And they just don't have a lot of money for extra support and extra help. So that's what the membership is, is specifically designed for too, which is only going to be $27 a month. So, you know, if you don't have $27 a month, borrow it, ask somebody to sponsor you, right? Eventually I'll have scholarships available, but that's going to give you the best shot along with this podcast to be able to access all this information that I'm using with clients on a one-on-one basis. So I just kind of wanted to give a more detailed explanation of who this is for. So if you're like, I'm not really in recovery or I'm not really addicted to anything, but things you're talking about resonate with me or whatever, you're welcome here. This is for, this is for everyone. You know, I feel like this information really does resonate with everyone. Um, so yeah. Can I add something there? Um, I feel like we're all in recovery from something, Yeah, Mm -hmm. you know, even just from living in our, in today's society you know, being surrounded by foods that are not, you know, nutrient rich and um, education that is not super helpful and could actually kind of be damaging and just taking us down the wrong track. So we're all, we're all in recovery, just different levels, different degrees, different stages of it. Amen. That is so- We can all benefit from learning about nutrients. Yes. So, so truthful. So yes, thank you for adding that. That's such a great point. Um, Before we talk about crucial nutrients- would you like to hear about our sponsor today, Nikki? Oh my God, who is sponsoring us today? <laughs> I, I didn't can't put wait. In our notes, I wanted to surprise you so I could <laughs> get that genuine, joyful reaction from you. Uh, last time we were sponsored by Cabbage. Today we're sponsored by. I need a drum roll sound in editing. Yeah, <laughs> arugula. <laughs> I love arugula. How do you feel about arugula? 
I love arugula so much. I could just eat it like out of the bag, box, garden, whatever. Just chomp yes. on it. Yes. And it's also along with cabbage, one of those foods that I did not eat until I was a grown ass adult, um, very, very far into adulthood. And I actually didn't like it for a long time because I thought it was too like tart or tangy, you know, Mm -hmm. and I didn't start eating it until I understood the health benefits of it. I, I, I heard that stuff and I was like, I need to learn to like this stuff. And I, I learned to like it like almost instantly. I don't know what it was. I just started eating it and I was like, this isn't as bad as I thought. Um, and now I love it. <laughs> so me, yeah. Me too. Tell, tell us more about, tell us more about why arugula is sponsoring us. Yeah. So <laughs> I learned a lot of fun things about arugula. One of the things is apparently there's a nickname for it called salad rocket. I've never heard that before. Yeah. Salad rocket. There's a lot of different names for it, depending on where you're, um, it's being harvested from and where it's being used. It's native to the Mediterranean area. And as we all know, anything that comes out of the Mediterranean area is good for, for us, apparently. Um, it's also a part of the brassica family or the cruciferous family. Um, so it's actually more closely related to things like broccoli and Brussels sprouts than you would have thought. Oh. Um, mm-hmm. very interesting because I'm like, it's just lettuce, you know, it's a form of lettuce, but it's actually a lot closer to, to that cruciferous vegetable family. It's considered a bitter and there's other, there's other foods that are considered bitters, but why do we love bitters? Bitters are so good for the liver. They're wonderful at helping you to detox from literally anything and anything that is considered a bill or does, uh, it does have a little bit of that bite to it. Things like citrus and bitter melon and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, arugula is also considered a bitter. So, so good for, um, for the liver. The other thing I realized is that depending on when it's harvested, if it's harvested in the spring or the fall, which are like cooler temperatures, it'll tend to taste tangier, more peppery or woodsy. And if it's harvested in the summer, it has more of that like rich mustard flavor. So if you're eating it, you could probably tell between the two, maybe when it was harvested, um, you'll notice a little bit of a difference in it kind of has like a zesty flavor. Um, it's really good at nourishing the heart. So detoxing the liver, but also nourishing the heart, just two cups of it has about, um, there's so much calcium in that there's more calcium than any other salad greens. So two cups of arugula, more calcium than other salad greens. That was shocking to me as well. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. It's chock full of beta carotene and vitamin C, which are really important antioxidants. We'll probably do a whole podcast on antioxidants. They're so important for fighting the tissue damage that has taken place um, due to, you know, drugs and drugs and alcohol abuse. Chock full of folate. We're going to talk a lot about folate today. Super critical for supporting dopamine and serotonin. It's got a lot of iron. So it's a plant-based source of iron. And I just love how like God designed this vegetable and all vegetables, but it's high in iron and vitamin C. And when you consume a plant that has iron in it, if you want access to that iron, it also has to have vitamin C because that's how we absorb plant-based irons. And so those two, you know, work synergistically together to help you absorb that iron. So it's a wonderful source of iron for people who don't eat a lot of red meat. It's got tons of minerals, manganese, uh, calcium, we already mentioned, magnesium, potassium, copper, um, as well as zinc. It has anti-cancer compounds called glucosinolates. (laughs) I probably hacked that glucosinolates, something like that. Um, But that is a potent stimulator of these naturally occurring enzymes that spark uh, detox, but it's also 
Um, that same compound is so, so important for anti-cancer. It's really best if it's consumed raw, lightly steamed, or just quickly sauteed. Um, so arugula, I would say there's all this talk around, you know, what is a superfood? And there's a lot of misnomers about like, what does that mean? Does it mean like, if I just eat this food, it's going to have like these powerful effects. I mean, I think arugula is a superfood. There's no magic bullet, but if you're including it in your diet on a regular basis, you know, weekly, ideally, um, and you can put it into so many things, it's super versatile. You're supporting your heart and your liver and it's providing those anti-cancer benefits. Um, so I would say, why not call it a superfood? The best way that I like to have it is to like rub it with extra virgin olive oil. And then I love putting a little bit of lemon, sometimes garlic, but definitely Parmesan cheese. That's how I love to have it. <laughs> how do you like it? Um, well, first of all, I will agree that it sounds like a superfood to me. It's pretty darn super based on everything you just shared. I mean, yeah. that lives for so long. Uh, I love it. Honestly, like I said before, just plain, I can munch on it. Um, salad with um, same thing, little olive oil and lemon. Mm -hmm. I've also made like pesto out of it. Mm. Well, rather than using basil, I've used arugula. Oh my gosh. That's a, that's incredible. I never heard well, of that. Yeah. You can use pretty much any, any green, any really like highly flavored green, I yeah. think, or, or herb or something. So yeah. How else do I, yeah. I just think it's so, I try and have a salad every day and, um, I haven't had arugula in a couple of weeks. So this is a good reminder to go back out and get. Well, there you go. You need to mm -hmm. have a salad rocket. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Salad rocket back. Uh -huh. Um, yeah, it's just power packed with nutrition. And it's one of the foods that I recommend my clients the most because it's from that bitter family. So I'm like, mm -hmm. any way you can put it in there, you know, throw it in. I put it in with my eggs. Sometimes I always put it in with my salad greens. It's just, it's incredible. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, thank you. Arugula. For well, you know what else? Yeah. What else? I've also put it in smoothies. Like if I have, it's, it's, it's kind of good in smoothies like that and cilantro. They're, they're really strong flavors that you wouldn't think are like great mm -hmm. in smoothies, but it works. I'm going to have to try that. I also mm -hmm. love cilantro and smoothies. Cilantro is a natural chelator. So it helps to remove heavy metals from the body. So it's like a wonderful thing to literally throw into anything. Um, maybe we'll ask cilantro if they want to sponsor one of our episodes. I think we should. Okay. I know that I know that they're hard to get. Sometimes they're they're not willing <laughs> as willing to sponsor as like arugula and cabbage might be, but yeah, I think we could get in there to try to find their PR person. All right, sounds good. <laughs> you know what? This conversation makes me feel like those cheesy um, NPR ladies that they make fun of on Saturday Night Live, who are just like, <laughs> anyway, super fun stuff. Okay. Um, all right. So crucial nutrients. That's what we're going to talk about today. I've pulled together you know, quite a few resources for us to discuss some of these crucial nutrients. And I want to tell you where those resources come from, because this is why the pause protocol was developed. You know, I consult the book, um, that was written by Julia Ross, the mood cure, which I'll probably talk about a lot. That's like the one book, you know, that I would recommend for anybody that wants to do anything nutritionally in recovery. That's a great book. Dr. Joan Matthews Larson, who also wrote seven weeks to sobriety and, um, the other one is called, I think, healing depression. Oh, depression free. Um, Dr. Joan Matthews Larson. She 
was a wonderful woman, huge pioneer in this field. She just passed away last year in her nineties, which is just tragic. Um, but she has just left us with these wonderful books that give us so much wonderful information. Um, there's a, there's an article I'll put in the show notes from today's dietitian. It was done back in like 2014, I think where they pulled together all of, you know, the available data at the time and kind of compiled it into this long article that was useful for dietitians who may be seeing people with substance abuse issues coming through the ER and things like that. But that's a really, really wonderful resource that I go back to often because it's so highly researched and it quotes tons of really great studies. But also I just want to share like PubMed. If you go on PubMed, which is like the open source, um, you know, whatever you just Google PubMed, you go to this open source website and you type in anything, um, you know, you type in antioxidants or whatever you type in alcohol abuse and magnesium, you can pull all this data from studies that have been done. And so that's what irritates me. You know, I don't remember if we talked about this last time or not, but if you went into the doctor's office and you were diagnosed with diabetes or heart disease or whatever, the doctor is going to give you this little printout from like, you know, the Mayo clinic or whatever that says, here's the diet you should do for this disease or disorder that you have. But if you go to the doctor and you say, I'm in recovery doc, I want to take care of my body. I want to get rid of these cravings, repair the damage that may have been done. What should I do? I guarantee you, they're going to say, well, just eat healthy. You know, maybe do a plant-based diet, you know, increase your vegetables, maybe just cut back on the soda or, or they might tell you, well, you know, the best way to treat cravings is to just give yourself sugar, um, which is like the worst advice ever. In some ways, there is benefit to that. If we're looking at it through the lens of harm reduction, right? Like if you literally feel like I've got two options in front of me, it's go to the liquor store or go to Dairy Queen, then go to Dairy Queen, right? But, and and in those emergency situations, that is what you should do. But if you're being intentional in recovery, what I would say is outside of those emergency situations, being really intentional about your diet, following this really, um, you know, general advice that we have put together and created what's called the pause protocol, which is the framework that can help people um, get uh, all of these crucial nutrients that they need in recovery um, is really where it's at. So we pulled the science together, created the pause protocol. If you're following that framework, you're probably doing pretty good. Um, so moving on from there, we're going to talk a little bit about some of these nutrients. We're going to start out talking a little bit of what, what can happen for people in recovery. What are they kind of dealing with? I think everybody knows that potentially, uh, organ damage is a thing, right? You could damage your lungs. You could damage your liver. There's all sorts of progression of liver disease all the way up to cirrhosis. The good news about the liver is that it's incredibly regenerative. And if, as long as you don't hit cirrhosis, you can actually reverse so much liver damage, oftentimes hundred percent of it. Even when you hit cirrhosis though, depending on what stage it's in, a lot of folks will still experience a regeneration of parts of their liver. I recently had a client who was on the transplant list for getting a new liver. She was a young mom and um, she was recommended uh, to the dietitian at the hospital on the transplant team, but she decided to kind of go the extra mile and seek out somebody that really knew a lot about um, diets or nutrition for recovery. And we started working together and we worked together for just a few months and she was a wonderful 
client because she was highly motivated. She was like, I'm going to do whatever it takes, you know? So she literally just started packing her day with nutrient dense foods, just packing it full every day with nutrient dense foods. She came off the list. She now, as of today, and I was working with her this year, this is a very recent thing. She does not need a liver transplant. There's a, this thing called a MELD score, and that's what determines your position on that list. And her MELD score dropped so low that they took her off the list. So now she's having discussions just about how she's going to manage her cirrhosis that she has, which was obviously pretty advanced and she needed a transplant. You know, what she's, what is she going to do now to have good quality of life? She still has cirrhosis, but she now doesn't need to have that really intense surgery. Kelly, that is incredible. I know. I know it's incredible. And that, so like, we didn't do anything that was rocket science. We didn't even put her on supplements because we were nervous. You know, we didn't want to put her on too many things and put a heavier burden on her liver. Cause sometimes supplements can do that. So I think she was doing a really, really robust protein shake once a day that had like a lot of like extra greens and berries in it. But outside of that, it was just all nutrient dense foods. So um, yeah, these things can happen. So other things that take a hit is your immunity blood sugar dysregulation. That's a huge one, you know, developing things like reactive hypoglycemia, and then maybe eventually diabetes, even metabolic syndrome. I was looking at a study, um, about the connection between metabolic syndrome and alcohol abuse. And it showed there was a five to 31% increase for people with an alcohol use disorder to have metabolic syndrome. And it was, um, it was looking at drugs of abuse as well. And, uh, opiates, opioids tended to have a higher connection with metabolic syndrome as well. So alcohol and opiates gave you a higher risk for metabolic. And what is metabolic syndrome? It's like high cholesterol, high triglycerides, high blood pressure, you know, um, uh, belly fat, things like that. All of those things combined to, to create what we call metabolic syndrome eating disorders. This is a big one. We're going to talk about this in other episodes too. There are studies out there to show there's a huge overlap between addiction and eating disorders. Um, one study showed that just in general, there was a 50% chance of those two being co-occurring addiction and eating disorders, but specifically for women, it was much higher. It was 72% increase for women with it, substance abuse issues and developing an eating disorder. I'm going to do a whole episode on gastric bypass and the connection between alcohol abuse. It's a thing I've located somebody I think might come on and talk to us about it. Um, and so I'm really excited about that. Um, but also um, on the subject of addiction and eating disorders, I don't remember which book I was reading because this was 25 years ago when I was first starting like my journey, but, um, it was some book and I was, you know, just getting into nutrition and holistic medicine and functional medicine and all of the things. And who, oh, oh, I, it's in the, it's, it's almost there. It's, it's, it's almost there. The book, it's almost in full view. It'll, it'll come. Yeah. Um, anyway, the author or authors, they introduced the idea that alcoholism itself was a type of eating disorder. And to me that resonated because it is something that you're taking through your mouth, consuming it in a way, right? I mean, you're drinking it. You're not, you know, it's not like food, but you're drinking it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I thought about like how I was, you know, there's, there's binge eating and there's like starving yourself and all these different sort of disorders that happen with food. 
And I was binge drinking, you know, we were, you know, people binge drink. And so I don't know, it really spoke to me. It stood out. I mean, it still does. So that's fascinating. I've never heard it put in that light, but now it's got my brain like on fire because I'm thinking about the fact that the body prioritizes the calories from alcohol in terms of energy production. So if you're eating food, but you're drinking alcohol, the body wants to get rid of alcohol so quickly because it's a poison. It will prioritize the energy from the alcohol and use that first before it's tapping into the carbs or the fat or whatever you're eating. So the fact that it's been proposed as an eating disorder is fascinating to me because just the way that the body uses the alcohol to produce it's, I don't know. Now my brain's like jumping off. That's really interesting. And if you think of the book later, we can put it in the show notes too. Cool. Um, super interesting stuff. Thanks for sharing that. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of other things that I found too. Um, I'm going to hack this, but it's called hyper And basically it just means like high homo, high homocysteine. And a lot of people have heard of homocysteine in relationship to heart health. So they might go to the doctor and if their homocysteine levels are high, that can be an indicator that they may be at risk for heart disease or or cardiovascular disease. But this is much higher for people who abuse alcohol in that alone, having high homocysteine, um, can result from things like malnutrition, um, issues with the body absorbing nutrients. But the interesting thing about high homocysteine is that it draw it's the driver, or I might have that backwards. Um, it's the driver of deficiencies for B12 and, um, folate. I'm just looking at my notes because I might have that backwards, but one is the driver of the other, but they're very closely linked, right? Deficiencies in B12 and folate and high homocysteine. And so there's a lot of interplay between those. And we're going to, we're going to take a deeper dive on, on folate and B12. Um, but I found this study that showed, you know, 71% of males in this study. So all of the males had been diagnosed with an auto, um, excuse me, alcohol use disorder. All of those 71 males had an alcohol use disorder and they, um, there was a much higher average of homocysteine in those males, along with the lower folic acid, lower B12. And it was significantly lower, the folic acid and the B12 amongst the males who had the highest homocysteine. So I don't know, just really interesting. Um, and like, there's so much stuff you can pull at a PubMed about this. Um, if you have not heard of the connection between folate and depression, it's pretty big. So we know that folate is a critical nutrient. You're going to find it in things like leafy greens and that sort of thing. Um, but it's critical for making serotonin and dopamine. One of the most interesting things I've found is that there's a lot of folks out there who are what they would say hard to treat or resistant to antidepressants or antidepressants just don't work very well. And the doctors are trying to find ways, you know, do we switch them to another medication? Do we increase their medication? At some point they discovered that supplementing these patients with folic acid, which is the synthetic form of folate for a lot of them helped increase the effectiveness of their SSRIs or their antidepressants. Um, which is fascinating to me because we know it's a critical nutrient for making serotonin and just adding that nutrient back in, even in a a synthetic way, helped boost the efficiency of the, of the antidepressant, which it leads to the question of was the antidepressant working in the first place or were they just just folate. folate deficient, right? 
I don't, I don't know, because here's the interesting thing about blood tests for nutrients. You know, the blood is highly controlled. And if you're doing a blood test to look at somebody's folate or B12 or whatever, that's really just kind of a snapshot of the folate that's hanging around in the blood. It doesn't tell you anything about the folate that's inside of the cells. It doesn't tell you about a lot of the folate that's in the body and other places. It just tells you what the blood serum is. So there's a lot of kind of controversy around how accurate is blood testing for nutrients in the first place. And Western medicine has sort of found these, these cutoff ranges for if you're above this number, you're okay. And if you're below this number, you're not okay. But those ranges are based on the line between sufficient and deficient. It has nothing to do with optimal, you know, and people are so different. Some in the genetic variants. I mean, that's like a whole nother topic we could get into the MTHFR gene. There are people with variants of that gene who do not metabolize folate very well. And so, and, and there's evidence to suggest they may not even metabolize folic acid, which is the synthetic form of folate. And so a lot of them may do better on the natural form of folate, which you can get through food or get through a supplement if it, if it comes in that form. Um, but it, yeah, it's just really interesting. Um, some more information I've got here. It says there's now, I pulled this directly from a study on PubMed. There is now substantial evidence of a common decrease in serum red blood cell folate and serum vitamin B12 and an increase in plasma homocysteine in depression. Furthermore, the MTHFR C677T polymorphism, which is just that one of the genetic variants we were talking about, it impairs homocysteine metabolism. It is overrepresented among depressive patients, um, which they're stating just uh, strengthens the association. So we know study after study after study that there's a deep connection between these nutrients and the manifestation of depression, which is going back to pause in the pause protocol, one of the number one symptoms of post-acute withdrawal syndrome is depression. It's one of the number one things that leads people back to drinking again or using again, because they're self-medicating, you know, they're, they've bought into the lie that the alcohol is going to increase their, you know, their serotonin or their feel good chemicals. And it most certainly does that for a short period of time, but unfortunately it leads to greater deficiencies. So it, it's a tough one. Um, you know, if we're talking, we're not going to give like uh, you know, supplement recommendations or anything today, but just a general recommendation is you do need about 400 micrograms, at least of folate a day, you know, through the food, where are you going to get it? Things like asparagus. It's just whole natural foods, right? Asparagus, eggs, lentils, peas, beans, any kind of legume, really oranges, beets, any sort of leafy green, like spinach or kale or collards, um, Brussels sprouts, broccoli. Did I say oranges? Yeah. Um, walnuts, flaxseed, all of these things have folate, but they're also, if you're, you know, if you're kind of sitting there thinking about this, you might be like, eh, I'm not sure the last time I had a lentil or a bead or an orange or whatever. Right. So it's like, it's easy foods that you can kind of start pulling and putting into your diet. Um, but you just have to be more intentional about it. Like if you're not eating a whole foods diet, if you're eating a lot of processed foods, yes, a lot of processed foods are fortified with folic acid, but again, there's a lot of controversy around who exactly can metabolize that form. Um, and is it even, you know, is it optimal? 
If you're telling me there's a loaf of bread at the store that's been fortified with folate or folic acid, but it's also in spinach, it almost feels like common sense that the spinach is going to be a more optimal form of folate, right? Or folic acid. So Kelly, you just interchanged folate and folic acid. Are they the same thing? You know, they, yes and no. It's interesting because as I'm going through all of these studies, they often will use the term folic acid, but it's, it's clear that folic acid is the synthetic form of folate from, from my understanding, folate is the only natural form of folate. If it's not folate, it's synthetic and it's folic acid. But when you read these studies, they'll be like, oh, we're testing the levels of folic acid, folic acid, folic acid. And I'm like, they're not really testing folic acid. They're testing folate, right? Because if folic acid is what is most commonly used in supplements, um, if you want to get a supplement that has actual folate in it, you have to look for that on the label and it comes in a couple different forms, but it'll tell you, it'll say if it's folic acid or, you know, tetrahydrofolate, the, the natural form. Got it. Okay. Um, so yeah, a lot of folks will use it interchangeably. There's a lot of folks that do not believe there is any difference between the two. And they will say that there's, we know there's no difference between, because prenatal vitamins have folic acid in them to prevent spina bifida. And when they started adding folic acid to the prenatals and women were taking them on a consistent basis, it did prevent spina bifida. So that's where they're pulling that from and saying, see, it works. Um, but I don't know if that's enough evidence because we have other evidence to suggest that some people don't metabolize it very well, and it can build up to more dangerous levels in the blood. And there's even one study out there that possibly connects it with, with breast cancer. So mm. it's just one of those things where, you know, you read a study and it goes, we're not really sure, but it's something to look into more research is necessary. I think that's kind of where we're at with it. Mm -hmm. Okay. I have one little interesting thing to share real quick and it's not, I'm not going to get into specifics, but um, as you know, I work for a company who that does brain health coaching and also has supplements right? And they, both of their supplements, their morning and their night one, both are high in all these different Bs. Mm -hmm. And I talked to our clients and some of our clients like instantly have this response to the supplements and other clients have zero. What response? What do you mean? Just, um, oh, they just, they, they notice that their sleep is better. Their dreams are super vivid. Oh. Or they have so much more energy in the day or whatever. And, and I, I'm not sure I have a hunch that it's how they are um, processing the bees. Cause they're so B B high, both of them. Yeah. Different bees. And mm -hmm. it just, it's occurred to me, like, I feel like people, there's just a dip, two different type of, there's probably more than two, but many different types of people and they're processing because, and it's really quick too. I just started this this week and this is what's happening or yeah. I've been on this for months and I'm not noticing anything. You know, that, you know what? I have the same experience with clients. I really do. So, and bees are, you know, they're water soluble. If you take too much, you just pee them out, but they're super active. Like you take a bee, if you've never taken a bee and then you take a bee complex in the morning, most people will be like, Ooh, I got a little kick in my step, right? Like they'll notice a difference. And sometimes people will be like, Nope, nothing. So mm -hmm. that's an interesting thing to point out. And I don't think I mentioned that folate is B9. So it is, you know, if somebody didn't pick up on that piece of it of why we're talking about the bees, technically folate is a B vitamin. We just don't, we don't refer to it as B9. We just call it folate. Um, but yeah, but it is part of the B, the B family. Does that mean that folic acid is also B9? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, I don't know when I think of folic acid, I just think of like this man-made thing. So yeah, I, I guess it's technically a B vitamin. Okay. Um, 
but yeah, I don't know exactly how to answer that. So something interesting, um, you know, there was a study and I talked to, I like, I do a lot of presentations and I always bring it up cause it's really important, but it showed that, uh, those with an alcohol use disorder, up to 80% of them are deficient in folate. And the reason for that is partially because, um, some folks are just not taking folate in their diet, but also alcohol blocks the absorption of folate and a lack of folate, a deficiency in folate is what leads to a quickening of liver damage. So it's almost like this vicious cycle of like, I'm not getting enough in my diet. I'm drinking and I'm blocking the absorption of any folate that I might be getting through my diet. And now that's exacerbating liver liver damage for people that are drinking excessively. So it really is kind of this deep cycle. That's just really important, um, you know, to kind of touch on. So which leads, which leads me into the conversation, just a brief, just a brief conversation of like, why do we get nutrient deficiencies in the first place? Um, and again, this is a little bit of a controversy because there's a lot of Western medicine folks out there who will say, oh, nutrient deficiencies are incredibly rare in the United States because all of our foods are fortified and this and that. But again, they're just really kind of looking at that cutoff. And if you're just like 0.01 above that cutoff, they're like, you're fine you know? Um, and so their idea of what a nutrient deficiency is a little bit different. If you look up the Linus Pauling Institute, they have what I feel pretty accurate statistics on actual nutrient deficiencies and they're staggering, staggering, you know, it's like 80% magnesium and, you know, 90% this and 70% that, um, and it's just fascinating. So why do these nutrient deficiencies take place in the first place? the obvious place is that a lot of us are just eating a really nutrient poor diet. And the fact that if we are eating a lot of processed foods, carbs, sugar, things like that, they will block the absorption just like alcohol does of these critical nutrients. Um, so that's one of the reasons, you know, if we're eating a lot of processed foods and high sugar foods, not only is it blocking the nutrients, but it's also just sort of crowding out other things. You know, a lot of people who eat a lot of packaged processed foods often feel addicted to those foods. So there's just not, there's not enough room in the diet for other things because they don't have the palate for it just crowds it out, you know? Mm -hmm. And then lastly, and this is probably the, the most important one, I think for alcohol abuse specifically, the reason I talk a lot about alcohol abuse and especially its connection to digestion and mental health is because we drink it. Like the nature of how we take alcohol in is through the mouth, through the esophagus, down into the stomach, the small intestine, the large intestine, you know, part of the colon. It's just, it travels all the way through there and it's so inflammatory and it affects every single one of those areas from the mouth all the way down to the, the anus, you know, it, it does. Mm -hmm. And so one of the most important things is, is the majority of our nutrient absorption happens in the small intestine and some of it in the stomach and that sort of thing. Um, but it, you know, when we're drinking alcohol and it's damaging the little villi in the small intestine and blocking absorption of these things, um, that is critical. So even if we're like in early recovery and we're not drinking anymore, there's a lot of healing that needs to take place in the GI tract and there's supplements and other things that you can do to help um, make that a more rapid, um, a more rapid recovery, but taking care of your, your GI tract is really important. And, and knowing that that's the primary way that we absorb nutrients and it is so damaged by alcohol. Um, that's really one of the major issues of these nutrient deficiencies as well. Can I add one thing that I just yeah. think is so important and really stood out for me? 
Um, and I've learned this stuff in the past, but listening to Andrew Huberman's piece on alcohol uh-huh. and um, him just pointing out that out that ethanol, the type of alcohol that we drink mm-hmm. is both fat and water soluble. So mm-hmm. it can easily go into any single cell in our body. Oh my gosh. It yeah. just, it, it's a doors. Every door is open. Yeah. So there's that. So it just goes right. That's to the terrifying house. to me. It's super terrifying. You know, there's no blocks. There's no safeties for it. Yeah. And also when you, you know, you think about using, I know it's a different kind of alcohol, but use alcohol to, you know, kill bacteria topically, but we're taking it internally. So it's just killing off good shit, good stuff that's inside us. Yeah, totally. So those two things. And I look at back at how much I used to drink and daily, it just, just like internally, like cleansing in a really bad way, my insides, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Totally. I tell the story all the time. I'm like a couple hundred years ago, you're like traveling in a wagon across the United States, bro falls off the side and, you know, cuts his leg open. What's the first thing people do? They grab the alcohol and start pouring it on there. Why? Because it kills bacteria. What's in your gut? Three to five pounds of live active bacteria. So if you're just daily drinking you know, alcohol, it is just annihilating. It's like taking like antibiotics every day, you know, it's just annihilating that bacteria. And we know really more so in the last 10 years now, but this is going to be something we're talking about forever. And I can't wait to see all the discoveries that come out about it, but the importance between the connection of the microbiome and mental health, you know, it's just, it's a bi-directional highway. Those two things are talking to each other at all times. And so if you want good communication and, and good mental health, you've got to take care of your gut. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, fascinating stuff. Um, so if we're going to talk about groups of nutrients today, I'm just going to give you that high level view of some of these, like we kind of did a deep dive on folate, but just going into like, what are some of these crucial nutrients? Well, the first and foremost protein. So the studies have shown that, and protein is considered a macro. The macros are protein, fat, and carbs. Those are the three main food groups of foods that we pull from. The studies show that a lot of folks in recovery are malnourished, specifically in the area of protein. Um, You know, the reason for that is often dietary intake. A lot of folks will have cravings for things that are high in carbs or high in fat, but people don't typically have cravings for protein right? Well, I mean, in some ways you can, but if we're talking about in recovery and somebody that's just generally kind of letting their cravings lead them through life, they're going to generally be more attracted to things that are high in carbs and high in fat. So again, it just sort of naturally crowds out the higher protein sources. Um, and we know that when you put carbs and fat together, those two things very rarely occur together naturally in nature. When we put them together in these processed foods, they create these brain bombs that increase dopamine. So if you're a person in recovery and you have just kind of been going through life, you know, like I said, letting your cravings lead you in that sort of thing, you've probably become very accustomed to looking for those things that are going to produce more dopamine, right? If you're not at, you know, you're at work and you, you're not drinking right now, you're trying to get through your day, but you may be really drawn to those donuts in the break room because that's the fat and the carbs together, the brain bomb, you can get a little bit of dopamine until you get off work and start drinking. Right. So it's kind of fascinating in that way. The can very next, any other examples, like don't of some carb fat bombs. Yeah. So grilled cheese sandwich. Okay. Pasta with cream and cheese, anything that's going to have cheese and like white flour. 
um, you know, ice cream. Um, ice cream, I find to be an interesting recovery food because it is so, oh, we could just go off onto a rabbit hole about this, but it's that combination of fat, carbs, and salt that just creates that brain bomb effect. Not to mention that dairy products produce morphine-like molecules in the brain. And so does a grilled cheese sandwich because um, anything that's got gluten and dairy creates morphine-like molecules in the brain. They're called caseomorphins and gluteomorphins. And so we used to think those were comfort foods because they gave us that warm, fuzzy feeling and reminded of us reminded us of our childhood or our grandmother or whatever, but there's a physiological response taking place. That's very similar to a little bit of a morphine drip in the brain. Um, so the way that we consume food and the way that it affects our physiology is just fascinating. Um, what I was going to say is that the very next episode, I'm going to take a deep, deep dive into protein. So we're going to spend so much time talking about protein, but that's kind of like the first essential nutrient. And it's because it's the building blocks of our neurotransmitters, serotonin, dopamine, GABA, and the endorphins water, water is an essential nutrient. I cannot tell you how shocked I am when I, you know, I work at local rehab centers. It's kind of a, um, a mishmash of like detox. PHP programs, residential, whatever. But when we start talking about water, there's always somebody that's like, yeah, I love water. I drink water. But there's so many people that are like, I never drink water. I'm like, you never drink water. How are you alive? You know? And obviously they're alive, you know, they're getting water from the sweet tea and other things that they consume. But, um, you know, I also used to run a suboxone clinic and I would do the UAs there. And I would be horrified when somebody would hand me a little bottle of their urine and it's like dark brown. And I'm like, bro, what (laughs) are you drinking? And they're like, oh, I just drink Coke, just Coca-Cola. And I'm like, I can tell. (laughs) Will you please drink some water today? You know, I'm just fascinated by the whole like, and you know what they tell you? They're like, it's boring. I don't like it. Mm -hmm. And I kind of take a hard stance. Like, my goal is always to help move the needle for people. So I'm like, all right, what can we do? But at the same time, if they really push back, I'm like, at some point, you know, if you're over the age of 25, you got to move away from eating cereal for dinner and only drinking soda, you know, and not, and, and saying things like water is boring. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's vital for life. It's vital for all forms of life. Whether you're a plant or a person, you have to have a lot of water. You're like 60% water. Your brain is like 75% water. Um, so it's just, it's so critical. And it, you know, you have water inside your cells, outside of your cells. It's so important for um transmission of things in the body. So I, I can't talk about that enough. Do you drink yeah, a lot of water? I do. Yeah. And it's a, it's such a big one for me and for my clients. There's two things that kind of stand out to me. One is um, in your notes, I read earlier, you, you just said something really powerful about, you wrote something powerful about a lot of people in early recovery. It's like, kind of like that, um, you know, they, everything needs to be a stimulant. Mm-hmm. And so, like you said, it's boring, but not only is it boring, it's, it's lacking that stimulant component. Like everything has to be heightened. Oh my gosh. I'm so, so glad you like, brought that up. I just, when you wrote, yeah, the, those words really stood out. 
Yeah, that's such a good point. And it it is, it does remind me of a lot of folks will start to drink the sparkling waters afterwards, you know, being in recovery, because I feel like it's a good swap for alcohol and, and drinks when they're out. But also it does give you that physical stimulation. It doesn't give you the sugary stimulation. Some of those sparkling drinks actually have a lot of sugar in them. You really got to check the labels and some don't have any. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that is kind of a good like one up, right? Like if you're trying to move the needle, switching over to sparkling water so that you can get that stimulation while you figure out how to fancy your water up with lemon or lime or whatever to make it less boring. Um, But at the end of the day, I promise you, if you start that as a practice and you can, what I often tell people is put like three rubber bands on your water bottle. And when you finish a bottle, just pull a rubber band off, you know, try to get through three full bottles a day. And that's how you can keep track. So, but any, any increase in intake is going to be beneficial. There's another thing that um, works well for me and some of my clients when I think about, you know, our bodies, our nervous systems are like, they're electrical systems. Yeah. Right. We're an electrical system. And what is the number one best conductor of electricity? You know, you think about, you know, like in the summer, if everybody's in the pool and a lightning storm's coming, everybody out of the pool, you know, like water is just like, right. We don't have our systems and our brains, especially hydrated, like stuff's just not going to fire quickly and efficiently. We can, everything can work so much better when it's lubricated and flowing and hydrated. Absolutely. I read once that it only takes a 2% decrease in dehydration to start having the effects of it. So the the headachey, the low energy, the brain fog, 2%, you know, that's yeah. A match. So if you're at work and you're like, I can't concentrate, go drink some water. (laughs) It's probably going to help spark that electricity you're talking about. Um, What a great, what a great visual. Thank you for sharing. Sure. Um, so we already kind of touched a little bit on the bees, but just to take a slightly deeper dive on the bees, this is one of the things I find interesting. There's so much data, like I keep saying, but it's not being utilized in a lot of rehab centers. They will only supplement folks with B1 because I guess I guess it's reached like that critical point of having enough data at this point where they feel like they can regulate how much should you give somebody of B1 and why do they need it? Basically B1, a lot of your B1 will get used up very quickly during the detox process of alcohol. So if somebody checks themselves into detox or rehab or whatever, they'll often be given a B1 supplement um, by the rehab, but it's really just to replace it because B1 insufficiency can get critical really, really quickly. Um, and it can lead to, um, like, I'm not going to say the word cause I'm going to hack it, but bra- basically swelling of the brain. And in severe instances, it can develop something called Wernicke Korsakoff syndrome. So that, you know, and that's a very serious critical thing from, um, rooted in B1 deficiency. And so it, to me, it's a little irritating. Cause I'm like, you're going to give these folks B1 only because you know, they might die if they don't have it. But all these other nutrients that we're talking about that we have all this data on, maybe they're not going to die in this moment, you know, but they're still very serious and and critical. And so anyways, I just wish that um, there was a lot more supplementation going on in some of these rehab centers, but B1 will be the one that's most often replaced. If you're going into treatment, you know, it's all of the bees in some form or fashion help to convert the food that we're eating into energy, but they all individually have very um, individual roles as well. B1 plays a a really important role in um, your nervous system and and muscles and your heart function as well. Um, Bees. 
quick story. It'll be super yeah. quick. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you and I could um, exchange so many stories about our um, frustration with treatment centers and food yeah. and supplementation and all of that. I, I was working at this one, um, this one time and super high ticket, you know, like 28 grand a month at least. And I came in to do a private yoga session with one of the, um, uh, patients and, uh, we had, we got together at like noon and all she had had that day was a red bull and a banana. And I was like, what you are setting yourself up for relapse and so many things. And how is this even how, what, did, how, why are you not having like an omelet and like all of these, you know, and some an avocado and like all oh of these other gosh. things in the morning, like forced upon you in a way I couldn't believe it. That's it's that was shocking. Really mm -hmm. Yeah. It's sho and that, and that is, it's something I think about all the time because I'm always trying, I'm, I'm working on something that I'm going to provide like a free webinar for mental health um, professionals, because in these treatment centers, they're, they are unknowingly advocating for these unhealthy lifestyles. And it is true that a lot of folks that work in the rehab um, recovery world are people that have ha come from the world of having an addiction and they've kind of moved up and in, into these other positions. But unfortunately, they've carried a lot of these bad habits with them. I was being interviewed at a local men's rehab and I'm talking to these two guys and they were wonderful and they want to know more about what I did. And they were telling me more about their program. And I started talking about energy drinks, like you said, and I'm like, you know, sometimes I walk into these places and it's like the therapists are all walking around with energy drinks and their eyes just like bugged out of their head. And I knew I had hit a, a nerve and I was like, uh oh, and they kind of looked at each other and I was like, you know, it's all. And I just, I explained to them why energy drinks are actually can perpetuate relapse and why they're just horrible for people in recovery. And they are like, oh my gosh, they're like, we have a whole cooler right in the back, just full of energy drinks for everybody, for the staff, for the, and I'm just like. I wanted, like, I was trying to, I wanted the job and I was trying to be respectful, but at the same time, I was like, let, we got to talk about this, you know? Um, so <laughs> needless to say, I didn't get the job, but anyways, <laughs> you know, it's stuff, uh, it's important. It's important. And I think people in recovery need to remember, or excuse me, the staff need to remember that people are looking up to them and looking to them as models of um, health. And it doesn't mean you have to be perfect, but I do think that they should take on a certain amount of responsibility for learning this information and trying to implement it, you know, and I've met a lot of wonderful people that do that. Um, so I'm totally not harping on the industry. It's just things that I would love to see change. And so, yeah, just maybe one day we can do it. Maybe one day we can do an episode just on like our dream treatment facility. Yes. What all, what it would look like. Yes. And it all goes back to who is this podcast for? This podcast is a hundred percent for mental health professionals. Those of you working in the addiction field, because you can use this information, not only to direct your clients um, to the podcast, you know, when they graduate treatment, but also for you to listen and figure out like, how can I help my clients, um, you know, with this information, how can I help myself? So, yeah. Um, so we were talking about the bees. We talked about B1, B6, you will hear about a lot along with B12 in the mental health world, because both B6 and B12 are absolutely critical for rebuilding your serotonin and your dopamine. B6 <clears throat> also specifically for rebuilding GABA, which is our anti-anxiety hormone. We're going to do a whole episode on amino acid supplementation, and you'll learn more about GABA then, but it's really important chemical that we make to help us stay calm and relaxed. Um, and, and so, yeah. What I usually recommend for people 
in recovery is most people are able to take a B complex. A B complex is a simple supplement that's got varying degrees of all the B vitamins in it. Thorn makes a great B complex. Um, the one that I usually recommend to people is by a company called country life because it's very robust. And all I'll say about that, because I, you know, you, you have to check on these decisions with your doctors and do your due diligence. You know, not every, not a B complex is not right for everyone, but it will be right for most people. It, it can be overstimulating. So you it's just something you can experiment with, you know, take one capsule in the morning with food. If you don't notice anything, try two capsules. If two capsules does it and you feel a boost in your energy and that sort of thing, then it's working. You know, some people will take one capsule with breakfast and one with lunch, but it is stimulating. So you don't want to take it too late in the day. Um, and I always like to use brands that use the natural folate, not the folic acid. That's just my personal preference. Mm-hmm. Um, so moving on to fat, I'm not going to take a deep dive on fat. I'm just going to highlight one and it's omega-3 fatty acids. And this is a type of fat that's extremely important for your brain health. It's very important for keeping inflammation at bay, but it's also been studied in relationship to cravings for drugs and alcohol. And studies have consistently shown that in taking omega-3 through your diet or through supplementation, like a fish oil supplement can have a dramatic effect on cravings. They have found that omega-3 supplementation can actually increase dopamine production by up to 40%. It actually enhances the way that dopamine um, latches onto the receptor in the brain. And in addition to that, it blocks the enzymes that are naturally occurring that um, would degrade dopamine. This is actually really important for people with ADHD because People with ADHD not only tend to have lower dopamine um, production, they also tend to have higher enzyme activity that degrades dopamine faster. So if you're like a kiddo that's sitting in class and you're, all your friends have been consistently listening to the lecture for the last 50 minutes and intaking all that information and processing it, and you were like 15, 20 minutes in and, and then you lost it, it's because those enzymes came in and degraded your dopamine so much faster than somebody else. So taking a fish oil supplement, which again, there's cautions for this, right? It can thin your blood. So it's not good for people who are already on blood thinners or might be having surgery soon. Um, You got to clear this kind of stuff with your own doctor because I don't know your own medical history. Um, But taking a fish oil supplement is pretty remarkable. If you want to get it from food, have you heard of Smash? Yes. Do you want to share what Smash is? Sure. So SMASH are the five, it's the acronym for the five different, um, the best fish to eat with high levels of Mm omega-3s. So, and low levels of mercury. And low levels of mercury. Yeah. So we've got salmon, mackerel, anchovies, sardines, and herring. Yeah. Yeah. That's SMASH. It's such an easy way to kind of remember like, oh, what's the fish that's really going to support my brain health um, and not provide, you know, cause there's a little bit of danger with eating fish because of that mercury issue, but those are the ones that are highest in omega-3s, lowest in mercury toxicity. So generally, you know, considered to be safe and supportive. Um, so SMASH is a great way, sorry for putting you on the spot, but you nailed it. Um, <laughs> great way for getting more with your food intake. Um, but also, you know, walnuts and flaxseed, you know, if you're like, I'm really not a big fish person and a lot of people aren't, I, I do usually recommend that those people take a fish oil supplement. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but you can get some from flax and chia oysters too. Oysters. Yeah. I don't personally like oysters. Um, I love oysters. I know they're so good for you. You only need two oysters to meet your zinc intake for the day. So they're so good for zinc, but I don't know. I've never, I've never had an oyster. I'm sorry. Well, you've never even had one. No, I'm terrified. <laughs> well, they are so, so scary. They're weird looking. <laughs> totally weird looking. I know. It's a, I think it's a, interesting thing that happens when you put it in your mouth, Anthony Bourdain, actually in his book, um, no boundaries, Anthony Bourdain's book. Yeah. He talks about how the, the moment when he switched from being a non-foodie to a foodie, really? like his, his parents were big foodies and they were well-traveled as a family and everything. Yeah. And it was one day that they were out in Europe somewhere on a little boat with a man and he pulled up a fresh oyster and shucked it right there and gave it to Anthony and that changed his life. Oh my gosh. That's such a cool story. Yeah. I absolutely adore Anthony Bourdain. He wrote probably my most favorite book of all time, which is Kitchen Confidential. So I haven't I haven't read the one that you you just spoke of, but Kitchen Confid- Confidential is amazing. I loved loved that book and reading that book I fell in love with him and so devastating, but yeah. Oh, food can change your life. <laughs> we could probably like take a good look at him and his and see how much, you know, it'd be interesting to just kind of view his life and his lifestyle and just the different things that, you know, maybe he had predispositions to different sort of factors and then just putting himself in positions where he's going to be imbibing in different cultures Yeah, you know, could have just he loved his alcohol. Mm-hmm. That was very clear to anybody that watched his shows. So it was the first thing that I thought of, you know, after finding out that he had taken his life. So I, yeah. you know, you can only kind of ponder, but you got to wonder if there was a connection there. For sure. Um, so that's, that's all I'm going to touch on for fat, super important, but we'll talk about fat in other, other episodes and do more of a deep dive, just a couple like really general pieces of information, um, about the, the vitamins like vitamin a super important, really important for lung health. The precursor to vitamin a is called beta carotene. It's been found to be lower in people, um, with an alcohol use disorder or other drug addiction. If you're eating like the orange colored foods, you're probably doing okay. Like a lot of sweet potato, carrots, stuff like that. Yellow foods, I I think also have a lot of vitamin a, um, there was a study I pulled that showed that um, 70% of addicts in that study were deficient in vitamin D, which you can get vitamin D from food. You're primarily going to get it from the sun, but that's also one of those critical, critical nutrients for making serotonin. So it's like, it's so many of these nutrients are so It's probably going to feel like we're talking about almost every nutrient today. And we aren't, we're not talking about every single one of them, but we are talking about a lot of them. So if you were to walk away from this episode, just gathering any kind of general idea. The idea is that nutrient deficiencies are rampant among the general population, but even much more so for people in recovery. And so if you're doing anything at all to increase your intake of some of these high nutrient dense foods, you're moving in the right direction. That's really the overarching theme of today. I found another um, study talking about vitamin C. Um, It showed 55.4% had suboptimal levels of vitamin C. Um, And then another study showed 91% of the participants were deficient in vitamin C. Apparently there's quite a bit of evidence that chronic alcohol exposure can lead to scurvy, which is like the technical term for vitamin C deficiency. Vitamin C is 
So, so, so important as an antioxidant, but also as a supporter of stress resilience. You have these little glands that sit on top of your kidneys called adrenals. Your adrenals are responsible for pumping out your stress hormones and dopamine and adrenaline. And every time you experience stress, whether somebody pulled out, you know, in front of you on the highway or something more long-term, like you're going through a breakup, your body needs sufficient amounts of vitamin C to help your adrenals pump out those chemicals in a consistent basis. Your adrenals use 90% of your vitamin C. Um, I pulled that stat from Julia Ross's book, the mood care. And so when you meet somebody that's kind of like, you can tell their stress resilience is really low. Like every little thing sets them off. That's like one of the first things I think of, I'm like, okay, we need to look at vitamin C intake. You know, people think of like oranges and stuff as being the best source of vitamin C. And although you'll, you will get some from oranges, bell peppers are actually the best source. Um, And yellow bell peppers in particular have really, really high amounts of vitamin C, you know, things like kiwis and strawberries also provide a really good amount. Um, But if you're just like slicing up some bell peppers and eating it with guacamole or hummus or sticking it in your sandwiches or putting it in your salads, or just instead of carrot sticks, you do bell pepper sticks, you know, that's a really intentional way to get your vitamin C up. It's one of the few nutrients we really can't get from animal products. You need to be more intentional about it. Um, I, I pulled this interesting quote. It said guidelines from multiple task forces across the United States of America make no mention at all of vitamin C replacement, despite a known state of hypovitaminosis in alcoholics. That statement just drove me bonkers. It I mean, it goes back to that idea of like, okay, here's some B1 because we don't want you to die in our care tonight. But they know that vitamin C deficiency is rampant for people experiencing alcohol abuse. Like why not just give them some vitamin C? Is it a money thing? Is it not client-centered care? Is it that, is it ignorance? There's just so many, I don't want this to turn into an episode where I'm just like bashing the industry, but this is the kind of stuff where I'm like, what's my role? My role is educate and talk and talk and talk until I'm blue in the face. That's what I want to do for the rest of my life to have an impact on the industry and start to change these things. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, vitamin E really powerful group of antioxidants. Uh, some observational studies suggested that vitamin E deficiency increases the liver's vulnerability to alcohol. So it was kind of like, if you're really lacking in vitamin E in your diet, maybe your liver is like a little bit more vulnerable to liver damage in that situation. Um, you know, and we're just getting this from pretty obvious places like spinach and almonds and sunflower seeds, broccoli, um, but really, really powerful antioxidant, which you'll learn in other episodes, why antioxidants are so, so important. I can't wait for that one. Yeah. Did you, I, I don't know if you mentioned any food sources of vitamin D. Oh yeah. Eggs, milk. I think salmon has some vitamin D your body will regulate, you know, how much you're like, if you're not getting enough from the sun, your body will sort of send you in the direction to try to get more from food. There's kind of this interesting balance that takes place. Um, it is important to intake some of it from the diet, but sunlight is probably even more important when it comes to vitamin D. Um, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Um, 
talk about minerals real briefly. And then we're going to talk just a little bit about pharmaceuticals and how they can lead to different nutrient deficiencies. And then um, I'm going to give some super practical tips um, about ways you can start implementing some of this today. Minerals is kind of like a whole nother group of, of things we didn't talk about, but there, some of these are just so important, like magnesium, extremely critical for people in recovery. Typically people are deficient. I've read a lot of stats from different places that say around 80% of Americans are deficient in magnesium. So important for the nervous system, like literally just keeping you calm and relaxed. It's really important for cardiac function. It tends to block, um, tends is probably not the right word. It does. It blocks overstimulating neurotransmitters. So we have, we have certain neurotransmitters that are stimulating and they play a role and they're an important role, but sometimes for some people, they can be too overstimulating like glutamate, for instance, can be overstimulating for a lot of people. And so magnesium will tend to block some of those overstimulating neurotransmitters, which can help with anxiety. If somebody's got a lot of anxiety, magnesium is one of the first things we talk about. And there's a lot of different forms of magnesium. So, um, you know, magnesium glycinate, and magnesium threonate tend to be two forms that are kind of not so hard on the stomach um, and can help, you know, they've been shown in studies to support mental health outcomes. Um, potassium is another really interesting one. I see so many folks in rehab with high blood pressure. I mean, so, 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 so many. And a lot of people think that it they have it because their sodium intake is too high, but I never, ever hear it mentioned that often, um, a, a piece of that puzzle is not just the high sodium, but the lack of potassium, you have to decrease your sodium intake, but you have to usually in most cases really dramatically increase your potassium intake. Those two things play a critical role in blood pressure and potassium plays a role in fluid balance as well. Um, but you need a ton of potassium, like 4,700 milligrams a day. It's a lot. And people will usually go, Oh, well, I eat a banana every day. It's like, well, maybe that's a good start. Um, bananas are known to have a lot of potassium, but avocados actually have a lot more than bananas. Um, mm -hmm. so I feel like those are a much better source if you're willing to eat them. Um, excessive drinking can cause your body to break down muscle fibers. And when that happens, the muscles release potassium and this drastically reduces the amount of potassium in the body. And that's what can lead to hypokalemia, which is, you know, the technical term for low potassium. Pot potassium is extremely tightly controlled by the blood. So there's a very small range it needs to stay within. And once it starts to drop below that range, it can actually be extremely dangerous. Um, I pulled a study that said hypokalemia, so low potassium occurs in almost 50% of patients with chronic alcohol consumption disorder. Um, so this, you know, just goes to speaking to the importance of some of these minerals. And one of the best ways I've found to help people increase their mineral intake is pumpkin seeds. Pumpkin mm -hmm. seeds are really high in, oh, those omega-3 fatty acids we were talking about earlier, but also minerals. So that's kind of a little good thing. And then lastly, we're just going to talk about fiber for a minute. Fiber is really important for like managing your blood sugar, which is super important in recovery, helping to lower your cholesterol. It can help a lot with balancing your hormones, but I, I do see a lot of folks who struggle a lot with constipation. So fiber is really important for that as well. It's really filling. So protein and fiber 
are the two most satiating filling foods that there are. So if you're one of those people that struggles with like, I'm just, I never feel full and I'm always hungry and I have all these cravings, increasing protein and fiber has such a dramatic effect on that. People will implement that. And almost immediately they'll tell you like, oh my gosh, I feel so different. Like I'm just not constantly grabbing and looking for snacks and freaking out about having snacks in the car. And like, I could go hours now without eating and I still feel full. And it has a really dramatic impact on mood. Um, There's so much like physiological stabilization that takes place, which ends up manifesting in mood stabilization. There's two different types of fiber and they're equally, is that what you were going to ask? They're equally important. It's insoluble and soluble. So insoluble is what insoluble just means like it doesn't like dissolve basically. So it bulks up the stool. Um, and then soluble does dissolve and sort of creates that, you know, smooth move of the stool moving through the digestive system. It can have that like broom like effect on the colon where it's like sweeping the insides out of your colon. So some great sources of insoluble fibers like quinoa, leafy greens, almonds, any kind of seeds, fruits that have an edible skin. A lot of people don't know you can eat the skin on kiwis, by the way. You can, you're like totally supposed to eat the skin on kiwis. What? Yeah. You didn't know that. I feel like nobody knows that. Well, I especially didn't know that because when I was little, I used to have allergic reactions anytime kiwi skin touched my lips. So I was especially, I've been especially careful ever since then, not to ever let it touch my face, but I know that I'm like super, my immune system is much stronger now. So I'd be like curious to see uh, what happened. Well, bring a friend along and test it out. I do occasionally, my younger son loves them. So when he wants them, I, I am not a fruit person. I love berries. Um, and so I'll eat a lot of berries, but outside of that, it has to be more of like me. Okay. I need to eat this for my health kind of thing. I just don't, I never crave fruit, you know? Um, but yeah, I do eat, I eat it sometimes. So, and then soluble fiber, um, chia seeds, apples, lentils, all of that stuff. A lot of foods will have both forms in it insoluble and soluble. So as long as you're eating a lot of fiber, rich foods, which are going to be vegetables, fruits, whole grains, nuts, and seeds. Um, typically for women, you want to shoot for around 25 grams a day and for men, 38 grams a day. And I think I mentioned in the last podcast, I don't know if I mentioned it or not. Did we talk about chronometer in the last Uh, podcast? A little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a great way for you to just check. If you're like, oh, I listened to Kelly blather on about all these things today. And I think maybe fiber is where I want to start, you know, just start a chronometer account, hop in a couple of days and see where you're at. I promise you, you're probably low. I think I've had like one client who I started with and they were already taking in enough fiber. Most people, it's one of the main areas we have to work on. Quick question. Um, yeah. um, psyllium, is that soluble or insoluble? Psyllium husks. I think it's insoluble, but that's a guess. Okay. Yeah. I want to say it provides more of the bulk. Mm-hmm. So just really briefly, I'm not going to go into details about this, but if you are on any medications, I would highly recommend you popping those into Google and looking up what the nutrient deficiencies are associated with those medications. There's a lot of medications that will deplete nutrients in the body. So if you're on a medication, 
it, you know, why, well, why would you want to know that? Well, if you know what specific nutrients that medication is depleting, then you can just Google what foods are high in that nutrient and try to incorporate more of it into your diet birth control. This is fascinating to me. It depletes folate and magnesium, which are two critical nutrients for mental health. And I make people feel good and happy. Yeah. And I feel like there's a bit of an epidemic of women on birth control and suffering with depression. Um, and I was on birth control for many years and I never had anybody tell me to look at my folate intake, you know, or my Mm -hmm. magnesium intake never. So anyways, metformin, which is a really popular drug for, um, diabetes or pre-diabetes, it sort of helps to usher insulin inside the cell. If you're insulin resistant, um, that depletes B12. Um, so B12 and I, I feel like that one is probably mentioned if somebody's on metformin, their doctor, um, may tell them about that, but it's, it's really, really important. Um, they may even be testing folks regularly for those deficiencies, but just to know, you know, but there's so many, there's so many, um, prescription medications that do this, that I think it's just being your own health advocate and taking a deeper look. Right. Um, so yeah, important stuff. So if we're talking about the practicality of this, you know, we talked a lot about these individual nutrients and, you know, some of them, we talked about where we can get some of these foods. Um, Just like generally, if you're in recovery, I highly recommend you taking a multi, you know, even if you just want to do it for a while, like you could do it forever. Our soil is so depleted. You know, the foods that we're eating are so depleted in nutrients these days. I've heard that you have to eat eight oranges today in order to get the amount of nutrition in one orange that your grandparents ate. Um, so there's no harm or foul in taking a, a good quality multi. And it's probably a really good idea just to kind of cover some of these bases, right? Especially while you're working on increasing your nutrient dense foods in your diet. But um, I also wanted to share with you PFF, which I may have talked about last time, but that's just the extremely simple acronym for remembering what to put on your plate, protein, fat, and fiber, PFF. So if you remember that going into your day, like, okay, I need a little bit of protein, a little bit of fat, a little bit of fiber, um, probably covering um, a lot of these nutrients, right? Variety is important too. Eating three times a day, two snacks. You know, if you're dealing with any sort of nutrient deficiencies or malnutrition, just making sure you're getting three squares a day and a couple snacks because you want every opportunity to start repairing some of these nutrient deficiencies. So that's just kind of like a basic framework, right? I'm not saying you have to eat three times and you have to have two snacks, but that's a great place to start. You know, if you're like, I don't know what to do, start there, see how you feel. You may find you only need one snack, you know, Um, but it's a good place to start using chronometer just to kind of see where you're at. You know, you could vary. Sometimes I call it chronometer and sometimes I call it chronometer. I really don't know which one is the real one. So excuse me if I interchange those a lot. Um, But it's so easy for you to just pop a couple days of food in there and just see right away. If you're tracking your normal patterns of eating, you're going to see right away. Oh my gosh, I'm so low in folate. I'm so low in magnesium or whatever. And then just hit up Google, you know, what, what food, where can I get this? What foods do I like on this list? Okay. I'm going to, you know, pick that up at the grocery store and weave it into my weekly routine. I'll just, Um, I'll just interject real quick and say that most people in early recovery don't have normal patterns of eating, eating. That's probably true. Yeah. Why didn't when my first doctors were like, well, keep a food journal or keep like, I was like, 
are you kidding me? That I'm, I'm picking at a million different things all day. And like, I did not have any formal, any formal routine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so maybe track, not just one day, like just track for a while, just see what you're getting, you know, it's kind totally. of like, yeah. I don't like to overwhelm people by telling them to do like a whole week. You could totally do a whole week, mm-hmm. but I usually just say three days because it feels manageable enough for you to get a little bit of an idea. And what it often does is it just sparks that interest, you know, where you see something on the screen and you and you're like, huh, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, and it gives you that starting point, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's a good point. So if you go to my website, um, which is www.theaddictionnutritionist.com. You can sign up for the newsletter there, but you can also hit the tab that says free downloads and get the pause p- protocol infographic, which is just a one page sheet. I tell everybody to print it out, put it on your fridge. It's got all the different categories of food. It's got the protein, the fat, the fiber, all that stuff. All those foods were handpicked by me because of their nutrient density, specifically according to the the pause protocol of all these nutrients that we need in recovery. So if you're pulling consistently from that list in those different categories, again, you can kind of rest assured that you're, you know, you're doing pretty well. Um, so that's just a free little thing you could do. And then I just want to encourage people, um, to join the membership. Again, the membership is going to be super affordable, $27 a month. And you're going to have access to live group coaching every month. You're going to have access to a lot more handouts where you'll be able to get some of this stuff on paper. You know, uh, you'll have that, you know, access to community. Every time we publish one of these podcasts, you'll be able to go into the membership and have like a rich discussion about it. What did you learn? What, you know, find an accountability, um, somebody that wants to make some of these changes with you. So uh, recipes for the foods that we talk about, you know, our, our food sponsors, all kinds of stuff. We're going to have guest speakers in there and all sorts of things. So, you know, that's, that's the high level overview of crucial nutrients. Again, we didn't, we didn't do a deep dive because we're going to parcel all of this out and do deep dives and other podcasts, um, so that people can get a much deeper understanding of like, really what is the power of magnesium and things like that. But I just really wanted people to walk away today with that sense of like, I could do better, right? I could pick out a couple things that she said, throw some pumpkin seeds on a salad, throw some arugula in with my salad mix. Um, you know, try some salmon this week, like any place that feels really good to you is a good entry point to starting to repair some of these nutrient, you know, potential nutrient deficiencies. And I just want people to understand how important it is. And please don't listen to your doctor when he or she tells you that almost nobody has a true nutrient deficiency. That's just not true. So that's kind of blunt, but it's, it's true. (laughs) I appreciate your bluntness. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's a wrap. Yeah. Nice job, Kelly. Super, super informative. Great. Um, uh, high level view and, um, yeah, I learned a lot too. Awesome. Uh, next episode will be all about protein. So I hope that you'll join us for episode three and we'll take a deep dive on that and give lots of practical tips and, and I will see you then. So thank you so much for joining us and thanks Nikki for being here with me. Thank you so much. Great job. Happy to be. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Hey friends, if you loved what you heard today, please consider sharing this episode with a friend. 
post it on your social media, give us a rating on whatever platform you're listening from today, or give us a review. This really helps us to reach more people and give them hope that they too can reach optimal health and recovery. And for sure, head over to the Addiction Nutritionist website to sign up for our newsletter and check out Recovery U at www.theaddictionnutritionist.com. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you feel inspired today to recover well. Quick disclaimer, Nikki and I are not medical professionals in any way, shape, or form, and nothing on this podcast constitutes medical advice. It is purely for educational purposes only. Please consult your personal team of health professionals before making any changes to your diet, supplements, medication, or lifestyle. Thanks for listening.